welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're studying the fourth gospel, and so far we've looked at the first five verses. <coughs> Excuse me. In these verses, Eleazar, Lazarus, John, has taught us that the word, Yeshua, existed from the beginning. He was with Yahweh, he says. So we see that there are two different persons. He was with him. But at the same time, the word possesses the same nature as the Father. And not only was he with Yahweh, but he was Yahweh. So there's a plurality in the Godhead. And the word possesses divine nature. You know, I've been hearing lately a lot from anti-Trinitarians telling me how I'm wrong. And I just, these five verses, I don't know how you get over them. I really don't. If you know the language and you look at the language and tear it apart, I don't know how you come up with some of the things that people come up with. All right? There is plurality within the God. In these first couple of verses, we see that. We, we not only see that He was with Yahweh, but we see that He was the Creator in verse 3. All things that exist were brought into being by Him. And in verses 4 and 5, He says, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, light and darkness are prominent themes in the Gospels and in the teachings of our Lord. They're employed as well by Peter and Paul. And the symbols of light and darkness are not new in the New Testament. They are themes that are rooted in the Tanakh and which are drawn upon and applied in the New Testament. Light's a significant metaphor in Scripture. The word light occurs on the very first and the very last pages of Scripture and 250 times in between. Let's look at the very first place that light appears in Genesis 1 in the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So here we have darkness. And then in verse 3, it says, Then God said... Let there be light. And there was light. You know, it's hard for us to understand the importance of light because we live in a society where we have light whenever we want it. I got a light on my phone. We got flashlights, switches. We always have light. But can you imagine living in a society where you didn't have that or a time when you didn't have that and the darkness was so thick? You know, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. You know, this kind of seems like a straightforward account of the physical realities of light and darkness, but I think there's much more here than that. If you study Genesis creation accounts in their ancient Near Eastern context, you know that there's a lot more going on. In the ancient world, the sea and darkness were synonyms with the gods of chaos and death. In the ancient imagination, darkness was understood to be a problem. And again, you can understand that. You can't really do much about it. So the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness in Genesis intends to communicate Yahweh's dominance over the gods of darkness, death, and chaos. At the beginning of this creation account, the earth was dark. It was formless and void. At the end, it has light and it's ordered. The progress is from darkness to light, from disordered order. Light was created by God to separate darkness and light. 
So God creates light as something, as an antidote to the darkness. Light comes from God. Darkness is a problem that needs to be contained. It is from here that the prolific concept of light and darkness, good and evil, is born. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So we could say that light and darkness are synonyms in the Scripture for good and evil. In the Psalms, light and darkness are used symbolically. Light becomes the symbol for salvation. Psalm 27.1, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? We also see that light is a symbol for truth. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. See, we see light as visible and truth is that, you know, light leads us. We follow the light. We go through the light. Well, the same thing with truth. Truth is to lead us. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. Light is a symbol of Yahweh's splendor. And it's a picture, a symbol of Yahweh's presence. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. We see this idea of light in the presence of God in the first book of Adam and Eve. Now, the first book of Adam and Eve is a pseudepigraphal book, but it was very important to the Christians who lived in the first century. And it's a very interesting book, and if you got the time, I think you ought to read it because it gives you a perspective on Adam and Eve that you probably never thought about. I mean, we think, okay, they got kicked out of the garden, boom, that's the end of that story, right? Well, it picks up with them getting kicked out, and it goes on for a while. And it, but in the book, Adam tries to kill himself over and over because he just doesn't want to be away from God. Chapter 11, verse 10 says, Think, oh, think, that garden in which there was no darkness. See, he got kicked out of the garden. But in the garden, he says, there's no darkness. While we lived in it, but no sooner did we come into the cave of this treasures, that's where they left, after they left the Garden of Eden, they go to this cave and they're living in the cave, that darkness surrounded us all around until we can no longer see each other. And all the pleasures of this life have come to an end. They're talking about being in the cave and he knows Eve's in the cave, but they can't see each other. They can't see anything in this darkness. And they're just bemoaning the fact of being separated from the presence of God. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, So long as we were in the garden, we neither saw nor even knew what darkness was. See, that's, that's incredible, people. In the garden, there's light because God is in the garden. He is fellowshipping with them. And so they're walking in the light. And they, didn't have a, they didn't understand what darkness was. And now they're out and they're living in darkness and they hate it. And like I said, over and over, Adam just, he goes up on top of mountains and he jumps off and he's trying to kill himself. And God keeps reviving him and bringing him back. Nope, you're not going, you know. But just, you know, you get the agony that they experience of being out of fellowship with God. And it just, it's horrible as they lament what this darkness, this separation from God is doing to them. You know, light is essential to biological life. You know, I think we know that with healthy hints. Without sun, you don't, your body doesn't produce vitamin D. Without vitamin D, you're going to die. All right? So we need light. All right? It's necessary for life to thrive, to flourish, to prosper. And the authors of Scripture recognize this. And the simple connection between light and life is developed throughout the Scriptures. 
especially in the Psalms. And it comes to refer not just to biological life or existence, but the fullness of life and Yahweh's presence. Light in life indicates vitality, prosperity. Darkness, conversely, connotes death. Psalm 56, 13. But you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. As we saw from the Genesis account, it is God's word that ushers in light. Yahweh's speech is light that illumines and makes known. And the concept is developed, especially in the Psalms, as God's word is described as light. God's word is described as a lamp. It's a metaphor for vision, for sight, for truth, for knowledge, for wisdom. And darkness, conversely, indicates ignorance and blindness. Psalm 19.105, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. The, the word of God directs us on the way you should go, just like a light would. Here's the path, walk this way. Daniel 2.22, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Speaking of Christ, the prophet writes in Isaiah 9.2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Light is symbolic of Christ who was to come. These are messianic. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this scripture. I want you to think and see if you can figure out where I'm reading from, okay? I didn't put the reference up there because I want to see if you recognize it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Yahweh, do save, we beseech you. O Yahweh, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Where's that text? Okay, we got it. Psalm 118, okay? Psalm 118, you know, he's, he's, this is the day. The day is not talking about the, the day they're living. He's talking about the day of Messiah. That's the day that the Lord, as we go on in the text, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is Elohim. He has given us light, bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. He has given us light. As we come to the New Testament, we see the metaphors for light developed in the Tanakh and get applied to Yeshua and his followers. Matthew asserts that Isaiah's vision is fulfilled in Yeshua. And he says of his life, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Here we see light as eternal life, salvation. And John teaches us this same truth. In verse 4 he says, in him was life. And again, we talked last week about this is eternal life. And the life was the light of men. Now the word, Yeshua, is light and he is life. And Paul preaches light as eternal life. Speaking before King Agrippa, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The central application here of turning from darkness to light would be a plea to Isaiah 9.2. The messianic light has shown Yeshua the Messiah has come and men need to come out of the darkness and respond to the light. He says, from the dominion of Satan to God. 
Being turned from the power of Satan to God indicates having the filth of sin removed, being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, standing complete before Him. Light is life. So we see in these verses the biblical metaphors for light applied directly to Yeshua. Yeshua's light is virtuous. It is good. It gives vitality. Yeshua's light is the source of vision or knowledge. And the New Testament writers follow Him and they don't stop there. The divine light which Yeshua is, is able to be the light of Yeshua's people also. We see this in Matthew. We're familiar with this text. You are the light of the world. He's the light. Well, how can we get to be the light? Because He's in us. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. That doesn't make sense, right? You don't light something and cover it up. There's no point in that. All right, You light it so you can get light from it. You put it on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Now this is, I think, what happened with Monty Williams in the testimony at the funeral. He was letting his light shine. And I think people at that funeral were glorifying God, saying he's an awesome God. If he can get you through this dark, dark hour of losing your dear, beloved wife who left behind five children, quite a testimony. Let your light shine before men. That's what we're called to do. Light not only reveals the state of things, it also dispels the darkness. It illumines the light of the gospel as it shines forth in the life of those who follow Christ. It dispels spiritual darkness. It reveals the true nature of evil. And that's why as a Christian, if you're around people who don't know Christ and you often get condemned from them for certain things and you scratch your head and say, I didn't say anything, I didn't do anything. Why? Because you're light. And light bothers people who are living in darkness. You don't have to do anything. As a young Christian, that was very hard for me to understand. I'm thinking, what do we say? What do we do? Why are they so... It's just the presence of light irritates people who want to live in darkness. Now, as we come to verse 6 in John 1, there's an abrupt change here. He shifts from talking about the Word, from talking about the Creator, from talking about Yeshua, to talking about John the Baptist. And a lot of scholars have said, these verses don't even belong in here. Alright? We should go from verse 5 right to verse 9. And if you took them out, from 5 to 9 just reads just fine. But I do think they belong here. Every one of the Gospels, when we talked earlier about the fact that John's Gospel is very different. Most of the source material is new. But every one of the Gospels talks about John the Baptist. And he is no exception. Alright? There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you can remember back to the first message we did on authorship, I said that the, the author of this gospel is John Lazarus or John Elazar. And Elazar was a disciple of John the Baptist. All right, we see that in John 1, 35 and 37. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. There's John. He's got a couple of disciples with him. And he looked upon Yeshua as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Yeshua. So here we have two disciples of John. They leave John, and they go and follow Yeshua. Who are these two disciples? Well, in verse 40, he says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here we see that one of the disciples is Andrew. Who's the other one? And how come he never names him? You know, 
This would be consistent with the author's practice of not naming himself. I mean, I don't know why else he would not name this other disciple. It's kind of, one of them's Andrew. Okay, who's the other one? Come on, tell us, you know? It seems safe to assume that when the writer makes any reference to another unnamed disciple, he has in mind the disciple whom Yeshua loved. It's hard to believe that he had a whole number of people he's trying to keep secret. No, it's talk, he's talking about himself, so he doesn't mention himself. So he's a disciple. So Eleazar now shifts from talking about the word, and he begins to speak about his former rabbi, John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And here, the Greek word is amy. The word was there is amy, which means to be or to exist. And it suggests continued existence. At the beginning of eternity, when there was nothing else, the word existed. But of John, he says, there came a man sent from God. And the word came here is ginomai. And ginomai means to come to be, to enter into a different form of existence. This is the same word that's used in verse 3. All things came into being. The creation came into being at a point in time. The creator always existed, but the creation came into being. The same thing about John the Baptist. In the beginning, there was the word. Always existed. But in John, there came a man. So in verse 1, we were told that the Lord Yeshua simply was in existence. He had been in existence. He was with God. He was eternally God. But in verse 6, here's a man who comes into existence. And notice he said, there's a man. He's making a contrast here between the word, Yeshua, and John. And I think there's a reason he's making this contrast. We'll talk about that in a second, but there's a real contrast here. There came a man. There always was a God, but there came a man. Sent from God. In introducing John the Baptist, Lazarus stresses that God had sent him. And the verb sent here is the Greek apostello. The verb carries the sense of sending an envoy with a special commission. We know what an apostle is, right? A sent one. It's the verb form of the noun that Yeshua will use to signify the 12 men who will be the spiritual fathers of the new Israel. Apostles. Well, John is an apostle. He's a sent one. Now, we have to ask, who is this John who was sent from God? I mean, why is this important? Why is he bringing this up here? Well, first of all, we have to understand that John was prophesied to come throughout the Tanakh. Look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says Yahweh of hosts. All right, so here we have this messenger, and he says it's my messenger. Now, who is the my and who is the me here? Okay, it's Yeshua, okay? He's talking about a messenger who's proclaiming the way. We're going to see this as we get into the New Testament. If you just had this text, you're not going to really get all the details, Okay. You got to get in the New Testament where this is explained. So the mind of me here is Christ. Notice the end of the verse says Yahweh of hosts. So Christ is Yahweh of hosts. 
again, we've been seeing this over and over, okay, people? Christ is Yahweh. We see this in the Old Testament. He's talking about the messenger, my messenger. It's Christ. Now, who is Malachi referring to here as the messenger? Who is the messenger in Malachi? Well, the word here is malach. Does that ring a bell? Malach is angel. Often used of angel because that's what an angel is, a messenger. But here it's used of a human messenger. And who is the messenger? Well, he tells us down in verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So the prophecy in Malachi speaks of Elijah. But there's nothing more distinctly affirmed in the New Testament than the identity of John the Baptist as Malachi. Look at Matthew 17, 10 to 13. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. And they didn't recognize him. What? Elijah already came and you didn't recognize him? He says, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. All right, so, oh, wait a minute. So John is the fulfillment of Elijah? See, they knew this prophecy about Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah. They knew that. They thought it was going to be fulfilled physically, literally. I mean, if you read this prophecy, what are you thinking? Guess what? Elijah's coming back, all right? Elijah's coming back. But in Matthew, he says, Elijah already came, and it was John the Baptist. So did this prophecy not get fulfilled? Listen, this prophecy was actually literally, but not physically, literally fulfilled. And this is an important interpretive principle. Something can be fulfilled literally and spiritually, but not physically. John came in the spirit of Elijah. Speaking to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, the angel says, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's a quote from Malachi. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The Jews expected the appearance of the literal Elijah. And John replies to that mistaken notion in John 1.21. They ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. What? I thought Yeshua said he was. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Yeshua tells him, if you want to understand the second coming of Elijah, you got to look at it spiritually. That's interesting. The second coming of Elijah is spiritually fulfilled. Is he trying to teach us something here? Look at Matthew 11, 13 to 14. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. So our Lord's telling us John is the fulfillment of the second coming of Elijah. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, as I said a minute ago, it's important that we understand this interpretive principle. Something can be fulfilled literally, spiritually, but not physically. We're so physically minded. Everything we look at has to be physical. And I think we need to apply this principle to many eschatological texts in the New Testament. So when you read 2 Peter 3, and you read about the heavens melting with a fervent heat, and all this stuff being burned up, is that physical? Well, we assume it's physical, right? 
And if it is physical, we know it hasn't happened because we're still living on earth. Nothing's burned up. Everything's the same, right? The earth is not toast. So if, we, if we're going to interpret that physically, we know it hasn't happened yet. But if these are physical words to describe spiritual realities, then it's going to change our paradigm. See, Yeshua said he was going to come in the lifetime of his disciples. The time statements are clear, but most people reject the time statements because they don't fit their paradigm. He can't really mean soon because we're, we know what's going to happen when he comes. Was Christ mistaken about the time statements? You know, to people, that's, that's, you want to talk about preterism, just go to the time statements. All right, people say, what about this? Who are the two witnesses? Who is, I don't know, go to the time statements, okay? Every time he talks about a coming, there's a time statement with it. Why? He wants us to know. He didn't just say soon and that leave it at that, okay? He said soon, quickly, shortly, some of you standing here. Over and over, this generation. He said it every conceivable way he could be, and people still are like, ah, he's not here yet. If these eschatological texts are understood spiritually, then the time frames don't have to be explained away. Yeshua meant exactly what he said. If we say these men were mistaken on the time references, then we are, in fact, questioning inspiration. He said he was coming. Soon. Well, John is described in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, he says, A voice calling, clear the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. See, it was really common in the first century that when a king was going to visit, you would have a messenger go out ahead of the king. And that messenger would say, prepare the way for the, the king. Make his path straight. That meant, okay, a king's coming, we've got to get ready for the king. And in most towns, that meant we got to get out and get some roads straight here because we don't have really decent roads. We've got to fix the roads. We've got to repair them. We've got to make it fit for a king to travel on. And that's the imagery that's used here in the Baptist. The king, he's saying, is right behind me, so you better get straight. Get your path prepared. He is coming. He says, make way for Yahweh, our Elohim. Now, keep in mind, again, that verse 3 is messianic. And notice the words he uses. If you were to read Isaiah 43 in the Hebrew language, it would read like this. Make ready the way of Yahweh. Make Elohim's path straight. Now, again, the significance of that is there's no question that John the Baptist is the herald of Yeshua. And this text, again, is calling Yeshua Yahweh. It's everywhere, people. It is absolutely everywhere. Yahweh, he's calling Yeshua Yahweh, and Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. The personal God of Israel. Now, Mark gives us some added insight into this man, John. You know, in, the, in John's gospel, he just very briefly calls him a witness and moves on. But the other gospels fill in a lot of details about John. Let's look at a little bit about him. He said, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice here where John's preaching. He's in the wilderness. The idea that this was happening in the wilderness is very significant. Because throughout the life of the Hebrew people... Significant things happen for them in the wilderness. When the nation of Israel is ready to enter the promised land, they come, they cross the Jordan, the spies go out and they bring back a bad report. Ah, we can't do it. These guys are huge in there. You know, what have they just seen happen? They've just seen Egypt destroyed. And they wouldn't do anything. Egypt was totally destroyed. They take all the wealth of Egypt and they leave on a dry bed as the 
thing parts. And, and, and they're like, oh, we can't get in there. These guys are big. Like, what, what is wrong with you people? The depravity of man, people, is just, it's incredible how blind we are. They didn't have faith to believe. So the entire generation had to die in the wilderness. And God raised another generation who would trust him and go into the promised land. <coughs> the full import of the wilderness can be gleaned from 295 references in the Bible to it. And what should immediately come to mind is Moses and the wilderness experience. The new revelation of God in Yeshua, like the old, was to be heralded in a wilderness experience. Which would pre- precede entry into the promised land. Now, under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed through the Jordan River went into Jericho, conquered the land of promise. Now years have passed and John is calling them back into the same wilderness. By the Jordan as a way of saying, we have got to start over. We've messed up. We need to go back out into the wilderness because our lives and our religious world have become so corrupted and so far off track, we need to reset. We need to back up. We need to go back to the wilderness. Baptism in the Jordan, the very river they passed through to enter the land of promise was symbolic of the idea it was time to start over. It was symbolizing the Messiah's coming. We need to turn back to God. We need a fresh start. We need to prepare our hearts to listen to the Messiah and follow Him. Now, what's interesting about John, he's got these huge crowds following him, but he wasn't, he was no Joe Olstein. okay? He, which he just wasn't. He got the crowds, but he didn't do it the way Joel did, okay? Listen to what he says in Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not how they're used to being addressed. I mean, oh, they're used to being, you know, given praise and accolades and all this stuff. And John just tells it like it is. You bunch of snakes, what are you doing? He said what was true. He wasn't worried about, you know, being politically correct. Or saying the right things to the right people. And to me, it's so refreshing when you get a man who says the truth and doesn't care where, what happens to him. All right? He just spit it out. Now, notice what Mark tells us about John. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. We got a huge revival going on here. This is confirmed by Josephus, a Jewish historian who said, Many flocked to him. For they were greatly moved by hearing his words. So he's out there preaching and people are just coming. Now, in order to understand the significance of what's happening here, it's important to kind of get the picture of this scene. Some commentators estimate that there could have been between 200,000 and 500,000 people participating in these revivals. That's a lot of people, okay? Mark is not describing the appearance of half a dozen people following this crazy man out in the, uh, in the wilderness. I mean, we've got these huge crowds. We've got this prophet comes on the scene in such a striking way that after the Spirit of God has prepared the people's hearts, the whole nation recognized John as, as a prophet. And the leaders even feared him. And so they're coming out to hear this man. And you have to understand, too, where he's preaching at, all right? The trip from Jerusalem to Jordan River is about 20 miles. All right, they didn't get in their car. Most Christians wouldn't drive 20 miles to hear someone preach, okay? They walk 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jordan. And from Jerusalem to Jordan, it's a 4,000-foot drop. 
Okay, so imagine a 20-mile hike, a 4,000-foot drop down to the river, and guess what? You got to go back. That's 40 miles up and back. All right, so it's a tough trek okay they're not this is not something comfortable for the people they're not doing what's comfortable hey we heard this crazy guy let's go out in here no they're making a big effort to get out and hear him they're making this incredible journey to hear this message that john the baptist had prepared about the coming of christ think about people walking 20 miles here man preach and it wasn't some, again, he wasn't Joel Osteen. He wasn't telling them how wonderful they were. He wasn't telling them how to think and grow rich. He wasn't telling them any of that stuff. He was telling them it like it was. And this wasn't a one-time event. The use of the imperfect tense here indicates they were continually coming to hear John speak. You know, this doesn't coincide with our modern church growth experts. You don't begin a ministry out in the wilderness if you want it to grow, Okay. You got to go where the people are. You got to say and do things that will attract people to your ministry. You got to have a seeker sensitive service that ministers to their felt needs. And you got to advertise in the paper and on the radio. And you got to form a welcoming committee. And you got to follow up with a visitation team. And you got to have a Starbucks bar inside there where people can get their coffee and their lattes and all that stuff, all right? Yeah, it just didn't fit. Okay, he didn't fit the profile. A lot of people, though, don't fit the profile of what the church says you should be. Jonah never took a witnessing course. Okay, he just showed up and says, repent, you know. (laughs) Well, why are all these people going out to hear John? Well, because for 400 years, there's been no prophet. 400 years of silence. God was done with Israel. And there was silence. And so when they hear a prophet's on the scene, all of a sudden they're, whoa, man, we got to hear what this prophet has to say. This prophecy, along with that given through Isaiah, set the foundation for John the Baptist coming to prepare the way of the Lord. 400 years of silence. Malachi's words echoed in verse 5. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. So here's the prophet. And they're all excited. They're going out to hear him. The coming of Elijah was an event eagerly anticipated by the Jews in the first century. They were looking for the Messiah, but they knew Elijah had to come first. The voice of prophecy had been silent. And now it's broken. And so they're going out to hear what God has to say. There's this anticipation they probably, a lot of them were a little bit disappointed when they got out there and heard what this prophet was saying, you know. Look at Mark, verse 6, he says, And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Why in the world is Mark telling us about what this guy wears and what this guy eats? What's the significance of this? I think he wants us to make sure that we are identifying John the Baptist with Elijah. All right? After Ahaziah was told he was going to die, the king asked for a description of the man who gave the message. In 2 Kings 1.8, it says, They answered, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. All right, so he knew who it was. Now, since the prophet was a hairy, had a hairy garment and he's bound with a leather belt around his waist, the king immediately recognized, This is Elijah. So when Mark describes the dress of John, he identifies him as the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming of Elijah. It's very important. 
Elijah, the forerunner of Messiah, has come. So here Eleazar introduces us to John, not the way the other Gospels do, not in a sense in his biography. We find that in Matthew and Mark and Luke. They tell us a lot about this man, a lot about what he did. None of that's said here. It's very simply, verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all may believe through him. The word witness here is the noun marturia. It means witness bearer. The word testify is the verb martureo, and it means to bear witness. Our English word martyr means one who bears witness by his death. It comes from these words. Now, the ESV puts it this way, which I think makes a lot of sense. He came as a witness to bear witness. It's the same word. He came as a witness to bear witness. Fourteen times in the Gospel of John, the word witness is connected with John. He was a witness. Look at John 1, 29. The next day he saw Yeshua coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's pointing to Christ. He's a witness for Christ. He says in verse 30, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher in rank than I. He existed before me. He says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. See, that's John's ministry, pointing to Christ. And he looked at Yeshua and he walked and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Paul Harris writes this, Witness is also one of the major themes of the fourth gospel. The verb martureo occurs 33 times compared to one time in Matthew, one time in Luke, and zero in Mark. And the noun, martyria, 14 times, zero in Matthew, one time in Luke, three times in Mark. So John is really making a big emphasis on the fact that he is a witness. That is his calling. He says, so that all might believe through him. This is a purpose clause. Here's the reason for his witness. Believing in the light happens through the witness to the light. There's no other way. Paul put it this way. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So he is coming to be this witness, to bear witness of Christ. And when John says so that all may believe in him, let me let you in a little secret here. All doesn't mean every single person. I was listening to a podcast by someone recently and I heard all means all and every time it all means, it always means all. Always means every single one. And I'm like, I don't know where you're getting your training from, but I mean, that's just ridiculous. There's no limit to this. All are believing through John, all who? Every single person on the world at that time? He didn't come so that every single individual in the whole world might believe. This is one of the many indications of the limited nature of the term all in various texts. Look at John 3.26. They said to him, uh, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Everyone coming to Christ? Did everyone at that time come to Christ? No, they did not. All does not always mean every single individual. And we have to understand its meaning and its context. 
heart. He says, so that all might believe through him. This is the first reference to believing in John's gospel. It's going to occur 97 more times. This is the goal of the gospel that you may believe and have life in his name. That's what he writes. We saw that in John 20, 31 and in the beginning studies that you may believe and have life in his name. And this believing people, he's stressing here, comes through a witness to the light. And this witness is necessary. Our witness is necessary. Listen, without a witness, people don't believe. They need a witness. Look at Acts 1.8. Yeshua says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He's talking to his apostles. He's talking to the believers there. You're going to be witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. This is the word, Martus. You're going to be a witness for me. You're giving testimony, the evidence that you've seen of the Son, of the Son of God. And that's something, believers, we are all called to be witnesses. Now, notice what he says here in verse 8. He says, he was not the light. Both John the Baptist and Eleazar want to make clear that Christ is the light. John was merely a witness to that fact. And I think he's doing this because there were some people in John's day who thought John was the Messiah. All right? Look at John 3.15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Hey, wait a minute. Is John the fulfillment? And, and I really think that these verses, the, the, only the three verses he, he brings about John here, I think this whole text is polemic. He does to say John is not the Messiah. All right, here's the word. This is John. John's just a witness. John is a man. He is sent from God. He is not the light. Do you remember in Acts 19, Paul runs across a bunch of disciples and he says, hey, you received the Holy Spirit. And they said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. We're John's disciples. And see, there's, scholars have this idea that there was a, a group of people at that time who were worshiping John the Baptist. They felt he was the Messiah. They're going to him. Now, if that's true, and it makes sense because these verses are very polemic, all right? He's not the light. John's not the light. The role of John the Baptist in the fourth gospel is to bear witness to the light. He's sent from God, John is. Yeshua is face-to-face with God and is God. John's a witness. Yeshua is the one witness too. John's the witness. Yeshua is the light. Now, later in chapter 3, John's disciples come to John and they ask him. And they said to John, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. You're, You're telling everybody about him, right? Behold, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Basically, they're saying, John, um, your career's over. I mean, you're telling people to go to him. Everyone's going to him. You got nothing. They're all leaving you and following Christ. And John's response is this. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ but have been sent ahead of him. So John's not accepting any of this you know, this worship. He is saying, no, I'm not him. I had my place. I received from God a commission and I discharged it. I'm simply a witness. 
I'm not the Christ. They're supposed to go to him. My ministry is over. They're going to Christ. That's it. He knows his place. He get out of the way and let him go to Christ. Later in the gospel, Yeshua says this of John the Baptist. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, Eleazar says in verse 8, he was not the light. But Yeshua said he was a lamp. Well, what's up with that? Well, the word lamp is the word luknos, and it means a portable lamp, a little lamp with a wick. And John was that kind of light. He was derived light. But in chapter 1, verse 8, while it says Yeshua is the light, the word there is phosa, folks. And it's the idea of light in its sense. It's, uh, we'll get the word photography from that and the word photosynthesis. He is the true light. Yeshua is essential light. John's a lamp. John is reflecting, in a sense, the light that comes from Christ. He wasn't hiding it. He was just pointing to that light. The Lord Yeshua is the creator. John is the creation. The Lord Yeshua is God. John is sent from God. The Lord Yeshua is the light, and John is testifying about the light. Believers, like John the Baptist, we're all called to be witnesses to the light. To point people to Christ. How do we do that? Is it just by what we say? No, I'll tell you. If it's only by what you say, you probably need to be quiet. Because if you're not living it, you're just damaging the cause of Christ more than helping it. Because, you know, one thing people hear about Christians, what's the first thing they say? Oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Okay? you got to agree with them. For the most part, Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. But we are to be witnesses to the light. Look at Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You don't believe in him. How, how, why would you call upon him? And how will you believe in him in whom you have not heard? Well, I never heard about him. I can't believe in him, right? And how will they hear without a preacher? By preacher there, it doesn't mean someone standing in a pulpit like me. It means someone telling the truth, someone telling the story, someone being light. That's you. That's all of us. How will they hear without someone Telling them about it. All of us people, every one of us are called to be witnesses. It's a great necessity. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes from a witness who's pointing to that light. We're all called to be like John the Baptist. We're to bear witness to the light. We're to call people to Christ. We're to tell them that He is the answer. Again, as we saw in that funeral service today, He is pointing people To Christ. It's only through Christ that we can do this. He's got it under control. Life is hard, but He's in control. He is in control. But how are you doing with being a light bearer? When people look at you, do they see Christ? That's what we're here for. We're image bearers. We're bearing the image of God. That people look at us and they see Something very different from the world around them. And I think that's our problem today. Christians have morphed into a worldly form that they don't look any different. They don't act any different. They don't sound any different. They don't do anything different. They just, and when crisis happens, they fall apart just like the world. So there's not much of a witness any longer in this country, and the country is just falling apart. And if we want to fix the country, the hope that's going to fix this country is not Donald Trump. Okay? It's the church. The church has to get back on its face before God, has to get in a relationship with God, 
It has to call the country to revival. Well, it starts with the church, though. The church has to have a revival. We need to get back to the point where we're worshiping God and not ourselves. And I think when that happens, we'll see some help for this country. But until that happens, I think we're on a downhill slide. So if you're looking for anybody to be a set salvation to this nation, you're not going to see them in either political party, I guarantee you that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, I think John makes it very clear in this text that John the Baptist is not the light. He is simply a witness to point to Christ. And Father, help us to understand that all of us are called, not prophetically, we're not talked about in the Tanakh, but we are all called, as Yeshua said, to be light. We're the light of the world. Father, I pray we would dispel darkness by our very presence. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.